when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither lot, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Well, if you're new to New Heights, my name is Pastor Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at, at New Heights. And uh, this time of the service, it's my favorite because we commit this portion of our service to God's word. What I mean by that is we're going to, for the next 40 minutes, dig into God's word and unpack his word. We're committed to doctrine. That's one of the core values here at New Heights. And one way we live that out is we make sure to teach God's word on Sunday morning. So we do it verse by verse and we go through books of the Bible. We want you to hear uh, a word from God. And the best way to hear from God is to look at his word, right? We have a saying here, if you want to hear from God, then you need to open up the Word of God. So that's what we do. So today, would you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. But what I really need to do is spend a little bit of time in the previous section, kind of just describing where, we, where we're at this morning. So we've been talking about a guy by the name of Philip, who was one of the seven men chosen by the apostles to serve the widows in the church in Jerusalem. And Philip was also someone who was scattered when the church in Jerusalem began to uh, experience persecution. And this, this all happened after Stephen was murdered for his faith. So after Stephen was murdered, the persecution took on a whole new level and the believers were scattered all over the place. Now Philip went to Samaria for his safety. In other words, if he had not left Samaria, Philip would have died. So his circumstances radically changed, but not his purpose. I focused on this last week. I want to focus on it a little bit again. Our circumstances in life might change, but not our purpose. I love Proverbs 19.21. It says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So God has a plan and a purpose for your life. That never changes. Your circumstances, they could change, but not God's plan. God is a sovereign God, and he rules the universe. The universe that he created, and he created it for his own good, his own purposes, and his own glory. So to some of you, just, just that statement, it might really, really overwhelm you. The thought, the thought or the extent of God's sovereignty. It's okay if it does. It does me sometimes too. The fact that God has complete control over my life. He's, he's, he's sovereign. But here, here's what I want to tell you. In life, we all face a choice. Every one of us is going to face a choice. Are we going to turn from our objections and praise his power and his grace and submit to the absolute sovereignty of God? 
Or are we going to buck him and resist him and fight his sovereignty? You see, Philip chose to see that, this, that God's sovereignty is the only place he could really find hope for life. In all of the circumstances, in all of the situations, Philip had made the decision, God is the only place that I can go to for hope. In God's sovereignty, Philip found hope for answers to his prayers. In God's sovereignty, Philip found the only hope for his success in evangelism. In God's sovereignty, he found his only hope for for the meaning of his suffering in life. And I want you to know, when I say he found the hope for the answers to his prayers, you got to understand that Philip had witnessed his friend martyred. I guarantee you that Philip was probably praying that God would rescue Stephen. So I'm not saying that everything that he ever requested to God was answered. I'm saying that Philip chose to see that it's only in the sovereignty of God that he can really find hope for all things in his life and circumstances. So we're gonna, we today, we can choose to do what what Philip did. We can choose to do the same or we will insist that there's a better hope or no hope. That's the question that you and I face today. And I want you to understand this. According to God's word, the meaning of life is to know God as he really is. See, this is what we want to do at New Heights Church. This is why we preach his word. There's a lot of sermons out there that are teaching you something totally, completely different. But the meaning of life, according to God's word, is to know God as he really is and to enjoy him and all that he is for us in Jesus. And to reflect in this really dark world some of the light that he's shown to us when, when Jesus, who was the very son of God, died in our place so that we might know God, enjoy God in spite of our sin, and then one day see him and know him perfectly. That's the point of life. And the meaning of life right now, I know some of you aren't going to want to hear this, but the purpose of life in this age is not comfort in this world. It's not to escape from suffering. Our purpose is not to avoid loss or maximize uh, all of the physical pleasures that we can of this world, not the achievement of any fame, not the right to any health, nor that we would be treated with respect and justice. That's not the purpose of this life right now. Those are not the meaning of life in this age for God's people. Remember, once sin entered the world and everything was corrupted, and once God's saving purposes began to rescue people from sin, the purposes of this creation were pushed forward into the time when Jesus would come again, and then he would set everything right. That'll be a time of perfect righteousness, a time of perfect peace, a new creation with no crying, no more pain, none of that. That's why over and over again in the Bible, we're told to rejoice in hope. Like Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 2, when Paul said this, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, and that's what Philip has done. That's what we've seen him do in this text. So his circumstance change, not his purpose. Your purpose will never change in this life. Your circumstances will sometimes be nasty. I won't lie to you, and I won't sugarcoat it. You might be going through some really difficult times right now, but remember, you choose to trust in the sovereignty of God, and by doing so, you don't lose your purpose. It's important. And because Philip chose to trust in God's sovereignty, we read that in verse 8, that there was great joy in that city. Don't overlook that line. Don't overlook that statement. There is power in that, in that statement. I want that for our city. I want that for Cincinnati. I want that for Fairfield. I want that for Westchester. I want that for Mason. 
By the way, if that isn't a hint that I want our church to multiply, (laughs) I want new heights all over Ohio. When people get right with God, and of course, that results in getting right with each other, heaven comes down and glory starts to fill souls. Remember, we mentioned last week, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, and peace. And you turn those loose in a community, you're going to see change. You're going to see transformation. New Heights Church is going to do this. We're going to see the word of God preached and the presence of God manifested in such a reality that we have great joy in this city. It's going to happen. Some people are excited. I like that. All right, so in this incredible work that's happening in Samaria, there is a very notable, uh, unique convert, and his name was Simon. We're not talking about Peter, the apostle here, but we're introduced to him back in verse 9 through 13. In fact, I'm going to read it real quick for you. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, one more. Focus on this. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, what I want you to do is I want to bring attention to this because you need to understand this. Not everyone who believes and is baptized is a real, genuine disciple. Now, this can be a little disturbing to us. It should be. Because I think it kind of serves us, it serves a warning for us, all right? Even with preaching that is doctrinally sound, false conversions can happen, all right? Simon believed he was even baptized. Even in some ways, he had this discipleship type of relationship going on with Philip. People can get baptized, people can attend the church, people can even serve in the church, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they become disciples, I think Simon genuinely believed, at least in the sense that he most likely really was convinced that Jesus was Christ, was the Christ. Jesus really was the Messiah. But here's the problem. Simon does what so many people do. They say, sure, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And they kind of have this Jesus and gospel, okay, right? For Simon, it was Jesus and his sorcery. In other words, he had this agenda that he came to Jesus with. He wanted to fit Jesus into his own personal life, and Jesus was going to serve him as long as it fit his personal agenda. Right? Think about it for a moment. That's not so uncommon. A lot of people do this. They have this Jesus and me conversion. What do you mean, Pastor Justin? Well, I mean some are going to say, I, I like most of what Jesus says. I'm even going to f- allow Jesus to be an influence in my life. But I still have the right to pick and choose what I will allow for my life. I'll keep out a few things I either don't like or just certain things that I just absolutely have a hard time believing. I'm telling you, this is so common and it's so wrong. So off. Okay? 
So people start to embrace Jesus as long as as he fits into their idea of what they want their life to look like. It's almost like they think the Bible is a book of suggestions. It's not. Are you following me? You either have given Jesus full control or you haven't given him any control at all. Jesus wants all of it. All your life. It's an all or nothing kind of deal when you say yes to Jesus. Everything. The problem is, the problem too is it's something humanity struggles with. When I lived in India, it was Jesus and other gods. So my wife and I served as missionaries to India for a little, for a while and and we'd see a lot of our Hindu friends say, okay, yes to Jesus, but then I'm just going to put the Bible up on my mantle with all the other gods that I'm going to worship. It's, it's, no, it's not like that. It's Jesus or nothing. It's all or nothing. Sometimes here in America, it's Jesus and, and some area he can't touch, like family. My kids, don't be calling my kids to be preachers. I've heard it before. I was a youth pastor for a while before Liz and I went and served as missionaries. And I got in trouble once or twice for kids in my youth group wanting to go to Bible college. (laughs) I remember coming back from youth convention and there were a bunch of kids that said yes to the call of God, uh, responded to the altar. And Liz and I were so excited only to get back to the church. And on Monday morning, I had parents waiting to talk to me. They were upset that I would allow their kids to think about going into such a field upset and then they went and talked to my pastor and my pastor got upset with me (laughs) stop upsetting parents in the church i didn't they just said yes to the call i encouraged them and i remember one dad saying this i am never going to allow my son to go be some poor preacher i said well what about if that's what god wants for your son (laughs) the true gospel demands Everything. That's why Matthew 16, 24, he said, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is asking us to step, step away, step off of our throne to make way for him to sit on it. And then once he sits on it, we're to pick up our cross. What does this mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? Not somebody else's cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, it means a few different things. Number one, it means opposition, right? A cross was used to execute criminals who had the state of Rome in opposition to them. That's what it means. This is what Jesus is saying. And his audience in this time would have totally, completely understood this. Number two, it meant shame. Right? This execution was reserved for the worst criminals, and the victim was usually naked on the cross for hours. You talk about completely being shamed. Number three, it meant suffering. This kind of execution, it was designed uh, to prolong excruciating pain. They wanted the criminal to suffer. It's not a quick death. It's something that you're going to suffer through. It. Number four, last but not least, death. Right? The aim of crucifixion, it was death. It wasn't just to torture you and then to let you go. It was to kill you. You're going to die at the end of it. So when Jesus said that the way to follow him was to take up our cross, he meant at least this. You've got to be willing, without complaining, <laughs> to be opposed, to be shamed, to suffer, and to die all for your allegiance to him. That's what Jesus wants from you. Let's get to the heart of the matter. To take up your cross meant to treasure Jesus more than we treasure human approval, honor, comfort, and life. Some of you are still saying, why are you saying all this? Well, because Simon's a guy who wants Jesus, 
but doesn't want to give up full control to Jesus, right? Simon's a fellow who wants the spotlight to be on him, and when it isn't on him, he ain't happy. I think Simon's story is going to speak to all disciples, anybody at any walk of life today, but boy, does it speak to us who are spiritual leaders. This is powerful for spiritual leaders because remember, it's thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Not some, not some leader's kingdom. It's thy kingdom come. This isn't about me up here. This is about Jesus and his kingdom. And sometimes spiritual leaders, get, we get a little too excited that we get to share the spotlight with Jesus. Sometimes we get a little too enthralled with the spotlight. Leaders get upset when they don't get the attention they feel they deserve. They don't get appreciated like they think they should. Now, New Heights Church, we want to honor Jesus Christ. We want Jesus Christ in the spotlight. If you come to this church, if you come to this church, we want it to be because you've encountered Jesus Christ and our prayers that you'd go tell your friends, we love our church because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you're volunteering here because you want to be recognized or because you want to showcase your talent, you're at the wrong church. We love it when people use it. We, we've got some of the most gifted, talented people, and we absolutely love it when they use their gift to, to showcase Jesus. We love it. We want to build a culture here, though, at New Heights where it's all about Jesus and not about our gifts. It is all about Jesus. For Simon, it was kind of about Jesus, but he wasn't willing to give up his accolades, his recognition. You see, for Simon, his desire to be honored and recognized, he didn't, he didn't like the spotlight being moved away from him and being moved to, to the Holy Spirit. He didn't like that. He didn't want to share his spotlight. And some of you are asking, man, why is Pastor Justin saying all this? I mean, the text says the guy believed. He was baptized. Look at this. Even Simon himself believed. Because, yeah, he believed, he was baptized, but then something happens that shows us that this belief was false. And I want to focus on it today. The apostles came down, they lay their hands on the Samaritans so that they received the Holy Spirit. Then, beginning in verse 18, here's what happened. Let's read it real quick. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be, for, may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I think it's safe to say that Simon was not truly converted. He has no part in Christianity. The text is really clear about this. He still needs to repent. He's, he's still enslaved to bitterness and in, in iniquity. You see that here, right? You see these two words. So I know what Luke 13 said. I know that Luke said he believed. What we can draw out of this is that there is a faith or there is this believing that does not save. I want to talk to you about that today. Even though it, it, even though it could come from the presence of true preaching and true miracles, it can still be a false faith. And maybe you're struggling with this idea. Maybe you're like, I don't like what Pastor Justin's saying, but we see it elsewhere in the Bible. Remember, the Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible goes as a whole. So listen to this. In John 23 through 25, look at this. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this believing, it was not genuine. Jesus could see into the heart, and he knew it wasn't. He knew it wasn't real faith. Same kind of believing or faith that's seen in the parable of the four soils. We've talked about that a little bit in the last few weeks. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, Jesus describes the second soil like this. Look, he says, and, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in, and in time of testing, fall away. They fall away. So the faith that Jesus is talking about here is not real saving faith. Paul taught the same possibility in 1 Corinthians 5, or 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 2. Look at this. Look what Paul has to say. I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. <laughs> Very clear in the Bible that there is a believing in vain. Another author in the Bible, James, he calls it useless faith, or even dead faith. Look at this. Look what James has to say. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Look at James again. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So I think it's safe to say that Luke here in Acts 8 is showing us that Simon's believing is not saving faith but a false faith. It's dead. It's useless. And I think it's pretty important for us to take note because the Bible teaches that there is, there is a faith that can't save and it can come right in the middle of true preaching and true miracles. All right? Now, the other thing, so number one, there's, there's a faith that doesn't save. And then I think what Luke's showing us here is, is he's telling us as Christians to keep the main thing the main thing. You guys know who Stephen Covey is? Stephen Covey, has, he, he coined the phrase, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I want to focus on the object of Simon's faith here for a little bit. Simon made the main thing, not Jesus. The main thing wasn't Jesus for Simon. The main thing was the supernatural. That was, that was what Simon was enthralled with, the supernatural. For Simon, the main thing was the power of miracles that he was able to see with his physical eyes. For Simon, the main thing was not Jesus Christ or the glory of his grace. It wasn't the main thing for Simon. Listen to me. The main thing is always Jesus Christ. The main thing is always Jesus Christ. You guys need to remember, Simon was a sorcerer. He was a magician. The guy was familiar with supernatural power way before Philip ever came into Samaria and preached. Simon would have been familiar with supernatural power way before he had ever even heard about Jesus Christ. And he loved to amaze people. You see the word amaze three times in, the, in, the, in chapter 8. Okay? He loved to amaze people. And he knew what real power was when he saw it. So he heard Philip's sermon, but what really got Simon going was when Philip was being used to perform signs and wonders. When he was used to pray for healing, when he was used to cast out demons, Simon really was enthralled. He's experiencing something legit too, by the way. He's experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. This stuff isn't fake. That's the kind of God we serve. That's why Micah is up standing and walking and eating a normal diet today when on Wednesday morning he was on his deathbed. 
That's the kind of God we serve. Real people, real stories, real authentic healings, and people being delivered from demonic oppression. A very real and authentic move of God as the Holy Spirit was ministering through Philip. This is what Simon's experiencing. And Simon knew this power was real. It was stronger than anything he had ever experienced, and so he was ready to join I use the circus because in in Simon's mind, that's kind of how he's thinking. I'm ready to join the circus. I'm ready to sign on and go with this traveling group. So he tried to buy the power of money because he wanted it so badly. And the object of his faith was the power of signs and wonders. This is what he believed. He believed that Philip was a real miracle worker. He believed something legit was happening. He wasn't questioning it. He experienced it. He knew it was real, and he wants it. He was ready to leave his own magical arts to join Philip and use this new power. But here's the thing. Philip had used signs and wonders to point people to Jesus. Not just Jesus, but to his redemptive power. Simon had fixed got fixated on the method here that was being used to point people to Jesus. He, he believed in it. He wanted to be able to do what Philip was doing. And he was willing to pay money to do what Philip was doing. But, but he never stopped to pay attention to what Philip was pointing to. Because remember, the signs is an important word. We talked about it last week. A sign points you to something, right? Signs and miracles point people to Jesus, but Simon could not get behind the sign. He didn't know what Philip was pointing to. He wasn't paying attention to what Philip was pointing to. He was too enthralled with the the supernatural here. Philip was pointing to the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not the object of Simon's faith. Listen to me. Jesus, you're taking notes. Jesus needs to be the object of our faith. Jesus has to be. So, He's looking for more than just a fan. I love Kyle Eidelman's book, uh, Not a Fan, or, or something like that. Yeah, Kyle Eidelman. Look up Kyle Eidelman and fan. <laughs> Having a brain, never mind. Jesus doesn't want just fans. He wants a follower. Okay, and I want you to see this here. The experience of Simon's faith was just the amazement part. Man, he was amazed. He was amazed at Philip's miracles, the signs and wonders. But there was a missing element here. There was no brokenness for sin, no trust in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. In fact, look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. He was amazed. But here's what you got to see. Simon isn't won by Philip's message, but by Philip's miracles. Simon isn't won by Philip's message, but by Philip's miracles. To be a follower of Jesus, we need to be won by the message and not just the miracles. Simon doesn't want the master. He wants the master's miracles. Listen to me, church. Don't pursue the signs more than you pursue the Savior. Remember, the signs just point to the Savior. But amazement at the supernatural power like Simon had is not saving faith. Believing that supernatural power is present, being amazed by it so much that you want it, is not an experience of true faith. Again, Simon was missing something here. Verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. See, Simon isn't realizing how sinful he is. He's not turning to Jesus and and trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. You guys need to listen to me. Amazement and excitement about signs and wonders is not saving faith. It's not enough to save you. 
I love how John Piper says this on, uh, regarding this passage. He says that signs and wonders are the finger pointing to Jesus. True faith comes when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We can have all the spiritual experiences possible by looking at the finger of power, but until we turn to the Lord himself, there will be no true faith. Love it. Love it. And here's, here's, what, here's what Luke is saying. Remember, Luke is a, a doctor by trade, so he gives us the underlying issue here. He diagnoses Simon's problem, and the diagnosis is an evil heart. His heart's not right. God knows the heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, again, look back with me at verse 20 through 21 here. It says, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. So Simon's just offered to pay money to have this gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's all about the consequences and the power, not about the changed heart. Do you see that? There's a word in our language called simony. Have you guys ever heard of it? Look it up in your dictionary. It's a word that means to buy or get, to obtain um, a church office by paying money to get some church position. This word comes from this guy right here, Simon. Simon. <laughs> who's saying, hey, I got, I got some money here and I want to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. I want in on this. So notice what Peter says. May your silver perish with you. Now, I want to read another translation to you real quick. And I don't want you to get mad at me because I'm just reading the Bible, okay? This is a translation from uh, J.P. Phillips. And it uses a very modern language. Translates this verse this way. But Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? You can have no share or place in this ministry for your heart is not honest before God. Man. What this translation is trying to do is show us the strength of the original language here. Peter's not mincing words. You get the point with the translation. So here he says, your silver perish with you. It's a very very strong rebuke and he got the message and all the people of Samaria got the message. You talk about a mic drop, it was here. Peter doesn't mince words at all. He doesn't tolerate this kind of thinking because guess what? Church leaders are charged with protecting the truth of God's gospel and this is what Peter is doing here. Our job's not to comfort people on their way to hell. That's not the job of a pastor. That's not the job of a preacher. We are called to protect the purity of God's word. I will never forget in 2005 when I graduated from Central Bible College and we were all being commissioned. I loved CBC. There was something special about it. I, I went to Northwest University first and then transferred to Central Bible College and there was something special about being at a place where every single student is studying to go into the ministry. It was incredible. Loved my time at Northwest. Absolutely loved my time at Central Bible College. And I still remember all of those graduating seniors being commissioned by our president. And I remember him lifting up God's word and saying, of all the things you do, your biggest task is to protect the purity of this. He said, you guys are all going. We're commissioning you in to be pastors of Pentecostal churches. And here's what that means. You're going to get some of the weirdest people coming into your church. Now, we're Pentecostal here, and I'm not ashamed of it. But what he was saying is sometimes there are going to be people that come into the church, 
and abuse Pentecost. Your job as the pastor is to be pure and protect the purity of God's word and protect the purity of true Pentecost, right? Don't get mad at him. He, he knew what he was saying. But he was telling you, you got to be careful. Your job is to preach God's word. Your job is to protect the purity of God's word. So this is what Peter's doing here. And I love church history. One of my favorite church leaders is Jerome. He founded a monastery in Bethlehem. And this is what he said. This is a quote from him. When you preach, always aim at pricking the heart, not stroking the skin. <laughs> That's what Peter's doing here. Remember, Peter's protecting the purity of God's word. How about Billy Sunday? Another one of my favorite preachers. A famous baseball player turned evangelist. And he once responded, he was getting criticized. Man, you preach too hard. All you ever do is preach about repentance. Why don't you preach about some other topics? You're so hard on, on the people you preach to. And this is how he responded. He said, they tell me that I rub the fur the wrong way. I don't. Let the cat turn around. I'm not going against the flow. You just need to turn around and it's all going to be all right. <laughs> so Peter had no problem addressing the issue here. Peter's rubbing the fur the wrong way, but Simon needed to turn around so it would be all right. Simon was a man with a crooked heart who, who willfully suppressed the knowledge of the true God, whose spirit cannot be bought. Simon was a man with a crooked heart. He fixed on Philip's finger of power because deep down he still wanted to be great and he wanted to be in the spotlight, just like it says in verse 9 when it says he was saying that he himself was somebody great. <laughs> Listen to me. If you really believe the gospel you wouldn't want one's attention directed toward you because there's nothing in you that could help someone. When we preach the gospel, I, I believe that the gospel, I don't want your attention on me because there's nothing in me that can help you. I want your attention to be focused on God. I want you to see Jesus because here's the truth. You, me, we're in the same boat. We're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. You understand that? You get it? So Luke is showing us here that there's this false faith that doesn't save. It's, ob it's object of the power of supernatural signs and wonders, not Jesus and the glory of his grace. It can create more fans than followers and, and people who are not broken for their sin and not humbled to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and the cause of all of this, well, it's a crooked heart. Look with me at verse 24. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. How about that? Simon still doesn't get it. You pray for me. That's not how repentance works. I can't pray for your repentance, only you can. You understand that? I cannot pray on your behalf for your repentance. I cannot pray you into the kingdom of God. That's a personal conversation, a personal decision that you, you've got to have. Yes, as God's people, we can pray, we can intercede to God on behalf of those that we love. We can pray for each other, but I can't pray on your behalf for repentance. I can't do it. That is an honest and real decision that you have to make personally. Now look at verse 25. It says, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they had returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So after this really condemning, difficult conversation takes place, it doesn't really say a whole lot more about Simon. By the way, church history will tell us that Simon never really figured it out. So Jerome, uh, uh, Justin, a lot of our church historians tell us this guy never did figure it out. 
kept going the same way. So it doesn't talk a whole lot about Simon. In fact, it doesn't say anything more about Simon at all in, the, in Acts. But what it does say is that God's mission or God's unstoppable mission continues to go on. Peter and John, on their way back to Jerusalem, began to stop in one village after another throughout the region of Samaria to proclaim the message of Jesus. That is a message that you and I have been invited to as well. We share in that mission today. Its roots go all the way back to Acts 1.8. Now, it's a different place. We're now in the ends of the earth, right? Cincinnati, Ohio. You and I are people a lot like Philip, just ordinary people with hands and feet and a mouth willing to proclaim the message of who Jesus is. How and when are we to do that? How? Everywhere, all the time. Proclaim the message of who he is. I would say this, America and Cincinnati, Ohio, are not that different from Samaria. Samaria was confused, rejected. It was a religious place. So is Cincinnati, Ohio. So is the United States of America right now. Rejected, confused, and even a bit religious. I could argue today that you, that you, especially in this younger generation, by and large, they are very open to having spiritual conversations, people. I mean it. Like, it's amazing how, how much people will dialogue with you if you start talking about God. But they're clueless. And I'm telling you, they are clueless about who Jesus is and why he has them here on this earth. And I'll even go further and say, it's not just with the secular society, but you're seeing this more and more in churches. Kids are confused to who God is, confused as to what their purpose is. So we have this incredible opportunity, church. For years, and listen to me, for years, church leaders and commentators have warned us, I've been reading this all my life and hearing it, that Christianity is dying in America. They say the American church is poised to follow the path of churches in Western Europe where soaring Gothic cathedrals with empty pews, shuttered church buildings converted into skate parks and night, night club, uh, nightclubs and secularized society. In fact, one theologian recently said this, that Christianity as a norm is probably gone for good or at least for the next 100 years in America. About 64% of Americans call themselves Christian today. That might sound like a lot, but, but 50 years ago, that number was 90%. So you see the path America's taking. That's according to a 2020 Pew Research uh, study. That same survey said the Christian majority in the U.S. may disappear altogether by 2070. Now, that might sound discouraging, but I get really excited Here's why. Because you and I are alive and well. We're in this place. The spirit of God is in us. We have a mouth. We have hands. We have feet. The only thing it takes for you and me to be willing to proclaim the good news of God all the time in our home, in our work, and in the marketplace. We are his message of hope, peace, and purpose. Everybody in this community who is not a part of God's family is desperately looking for meaning, desperately looking for purpose, desperately looking for peace, desperately looking for hope, and you and I have the message. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the answer, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can proclaim the good news every day, everywhere, and all the time. All the time. I, the worship team, if you'll come back, I'm closing. I know I, I got, I'm on time today. I've shocked the worship team, the worship band. They're nowhere to be found because they... 
But I'm excited because I believe with all my heart that we're on the doorstep of revival. I do. We're invited into this incredible mission, but here's the deal. We gotta preach it. We gotta proclaim it. We've gotta go. We gotta live it out. I've said it so many times before. The best ministry is not going to take place here on a Sunday morning. The best ministry is gonna take place outside those doors because the people of God filled with the spirit of God are gonna go out into the secular workplaces and change lives because the power of the Holy Spirit's gonna operate in them. Now, I love me a good old revival. I even got in the car and drove to Asbury to check it out. If you remember, I love, love, love being in the presence of God. That's why at the end of our service, we actually carve out time so that people can have, we took out an entire row to make our altar bigger. I'll take out more rows if I got to. Relax, I, I won't really do it. <laughs> I don't, don't want to remove any more seats, but I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to build a culture of prayer. I like it. I love it. I want to be in the presence of God. That there's a time where I got to walk out those doors and everything that's happened here is happening because he wants me to take it out there. It's not, I've told you so many times, I love this quote, Beth Grant, one of our uh, our presbyters here in our movement said at a general council to everyone, don't show me your Pentecostal in here. Show me your Pentecostal out there. I don't care what you do at this altar. I don't care how long you stay. It's pointless if you don't take it out there with you. See, the point of the Holy Spirit coming upon us is that we walk out there and we are used by the Holy Spirit. Not us, again, it's the Holy Spirit. So yeah, I'm gonna close the service. We're gonna open the altars. I challenge all of you to come down. I love praying at the altar. I love experiencing the presence of God, but it's for a purpose. And when I go out there, I better be full of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon me, I better be ready to proclaim it when I'm getting my hair cut. I better be ready to proclaim it when I'm at the Reds game. I better be ready to complain it when I'm at, or not complain it, <laughs> proclaim it. <laughs> proclaim it when I'm at McDonald's or Dunkin', I don't go there anymore. When I'm at the healthy smoothie place, right? <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna open our altars like we do every week. The worship band's gonna be here and play. When I'm done and I say amen, you are free to go. You are officially dismissed, but our worship band's gonna be up here and they're not gonna leave until everybody's out. So we're gonna open up the altars. We invite you to come. If you wanna get prayed for, we've got people who would love to pray for you. And if you just wanna come up here and seek God on your own, we'd love for you to do that. If you wanna stay in your chair and seek God, you can do that. Remember what we said last year. You could be standing upside down on your head, and if you have the right heart, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. So Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we worship you. We are excited about what we see happening at New Heights Church. We're excited about the spiritual life that we're seeing, the spiritual transformation. You truly are doing an incredible work. And God, we acknowledge we're not unrealistic. We acknowledge the fact that America does not look good compared to where we were 50 years ago, at least when it comes to Christianity. We acknowledge that there are some big obstacles that we have to face. But we also, op we also acknowledge that we serve an incredible, mighty, powerful God. And Lord, just like you did way back when in the early church, when you came upon those disciples, and you came upon them for a purpose to accomplish something. That same Holy Spirit wants to come upon us today so that we could continue to accomplish your purpose and build and continue to push your mission forward. So Lord, I'm gonna pray a special prayer over everybody today. God, let us, let us look at Simon's life as a warning. 
And I pray that if there's anybody in the church today who is not right with you, who is not fully surrendered, but instead they've given themselves to a Jesus and gospel, I pray today that they would fully surrender. Holy Spirit, work on their hearts right now. Draw them to you. Draw them to a place of complete surrender where they can give their life completely to you, experience complete deliverance and complete freedom. That's only found in you. And for those that call New Heights their church who have fully surrendered to you, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would fall afresh on us anew so that we could walk out of here through your power and see lives transformed and changed. Give us opportunities this week in our workplace. I pray that people would come to us with questions, that you would open the door for us to share, and God, that we'd be bold to proclaim it. I pray this over everybody's life, and I pray this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus, and everybody says, 